call is now being recorded. Hello, and welcome to Writer to Writer. Uh, this is Mark Rubenstein, and we're going to have a conversation today with Larry Sabato about his new book, The Kennedy Half Century. Each November, two things come to mind for many people, Thanksgiving and President John F. Kennedy's assassination. Many conspiracy theories abound, some having more credibility than others, none are confirmed, and none are airtight. Larry Sabato, a professor of politics at the University of Virginia, and I might also mention a Rhodes Scholar, has authored over 20 books on politics. He has recently released a fascinating new book, which I have read, based on extraordinary research. It's called The Kennedy Half-Century, The Presidency, Assassination, and Lasting Legacy of John F. Kennedy. Professor Sabato sticks with the facts not speculating, although he provides insights into many of the theories surrounding JFK's death and other issues of the Kennedy presidency and its legacy. The book points out many controversial things about President Kennedy, his presidency, his legacy, and the lingering effects of his assassination. It also raises what I felt were some fascinating questions about the most popular president in American history, and it makes you wonder if JFK was ripped from the 60s and thrust into today's media frenzy, what would the reception be? Would he be regarded as a rich man and a scion of privilege, as was the case with Mitt Romney? Or would he possibly be even regarded as a moderate Republican? There are so many questions I want to ask Larry Sabato, and I'd like to begin first by just saying it's great to have you with us, Larry. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be with you. Okay. Uh, your book, I must say, it is a richly detailed and obviously well-researched book. I was I was absolutely overwhelmed by the amount of uh, really readable and enjoyable uh, detail and research that obviously went into it. We could probably spend hours talking about so many of the issues that you raised, but let's just touch on a few. Uh, for instance, you point out, among many other things, that uh, – Modern Democrats have really forgotten, for the most part, how conservative many of JFK's policies were. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Certainly. It was a very different time, of course, and this was the height of the Cold War, and both parties were uh, strongly uh, opposed to the Soviet Union and in favor of uh, a vigorous national defense and all the rest. So I think some of it was simply uh, natural uh, that Kennedy would be identified with this side of, of foreign policy. Mm -hmm. But uh, certainly on foreign policy, he had uh, what we would regard today as hawkish views, conservative views. Uh, on some economic policies, I think that was also true. He was very concerned about not balancing the budget, but keeping the deficit quite small and manageable. Uh, he often uh, reviewed uh, proposals for new programs and and uh, rejected them on the basis uh, that they would cause problems for the deficit. So uh, that's why Republicans cite Kennedy just like Democrats do, focusing on other parts of his record, like civil rights. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Uh, you also point out uh, you point out so many interesting things, little tidbits at times, but they they have other implications. You you mentioned that Jackie Kennedy, uh, when talking about her husband's 
death said, quote, he didn't even have the satisfaction of being killed for civil rights. It had to be some silly little communist. It even robs his death of any meaning, unquote. Can you talk a little bit about that? Certainly. Uh, Mrs. Kennedy uh, uttered those words on Air Force One, flying back to Washington from Dallas on November 22nd. And, you know, as I think about it, I believe that that was part of the genesis of her Camelot uh, uh, manufacturing. And, you know, there was no such thing as Camelot during Kennedy's life, but uh, the the myth of Camelot was directly attributed to Mrs. Kennedy in talking with with uh, Teddy White, uh, and it was published just a few days after the assassination. Um, I think that's why she did it. She realized that the death itself would have no meaning unless it was put into the context of the administration. She wanted uh, she wanted the country to have uh, a reference point. She wanted her children to be proud of their father. She wanted the country to be proud of John F. Kennedy, and that was that was probably one of the reasons why she uh, she came up with the Camelot designation. So she was something of an image maker as well. Though so she was indeed, and yes. her finest moment in public life, at least, was putting together that incredible Lincoln-esque funeral and then designing the memorial image of the Kennedy administration, all while suffering terrible grief and dislocation. Uh, she was she had to leave the White House. She had two young children who were fatherless. It really is remarkable that she was able to keep her composure and, and to think so clearly about what needed to be done. Mm-hmm. Your book explores uh, in in rather great depth uh, some of JFK's health issues. Uh, Can you just describe them a little bit and his reliance on medications and various physicians? And in your view, did this in any way begin to affect his competence in office? He had always been sickly. Uh, the, the family joke was that a mosquito uh, would bite uh, Jack and, and the mosquito would die. Um, he, he'd been sickly as a child, very sickly. Um, he had uh, spent a, a good bit of time in his, his um, early education in infirmaries. Uh, the family was very concerned about him. At one point, he was diagnosed with leukemia. Probably wasn't an accurate uh, diagnosis, but he was in he was in terrible pain, and he was really quite sick even before World War II when mm-hmm. he had to use family connections to get into the Navy because he couldn't pass the physical exam. He he, he just had too many physical problems. Uh, then, of course, came the PT Boat 109 um, incident with the Japanese destroyer slicing it in half, and Kennedy absolutely ruined his back. Uh, rescuing some of his crewmen uh, from that terrible accident during World War II. Uh, a combination of that and operations on the back and, and Addison's disease, which he clearly had, and mm-hmm. uh, the medical knowledge at the time was rudimentary about some of these diseases, and he was given large doses of steroids and cortisone and, and also speed <laughs> for extra energy. He and Mrs. Kennedy were, were given uh, injections of uh, speed on sometimes a daily basis by a doctor uh, they knew who came to be known as Dr. Feelgood. These Mm -hmm. are things we can't imagine today. Did it affect his judgment? Well, inevitably. 
Of course it had to at times. It probably made him euphoric at times, and I don't know that, that that's necessarily a bad thing for presidents, but you don't want a president to be euphoric while making decisions about nuclear weapons during the Cuban Missile Crisis. So it's something we would not tolerate today, but in those times, given the context of the times and his own physical illnesses, which he lied about, which his campaign lied about, mm-hmm. uh, it's a little more understandable. Mm-hmm. We, we, you were speaking about uh, you know his early life and his his family and the family joke. We, we know that uh, Joseph Kennedy Sr., JFK's father, was really grooming Joe Jr. for the presidency, and of course that son was killed in World War II. In your opinion, Larry, do you think JFK carried any emotional scars for being what uh, I would call perhaps a pinch hitter for his father's first choice, his older brother? Well, that's a very good question. I'm not a psychologist. I can't say for sure. And Jack Kennedy seemed reasonably relaxed about all of this. He loved his brother. They were competitors, but he he clearly loved and missed his brother. Um, and I don't think he would have gone into politics had it had it not been for for Joe Jr.'s uh, death. Uh, he was more interested in, in journalism or perhaps becoming an author. He had enjoyed his early experience with Why England Slept, uh, a, a book about uh, why England was unprepared for World War II, which did very, very well. Of course, Daddy promoted it a great deal, too. Uh, but, uh, look, I, I don't know about that. I know that once Joe died, he more or less recognized that he would have to take up the banner. He would have to go into politics. His father expected it. And he was surprised when he got into it how much he enjoyed it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You you detail uh, beautifully the Cuban Missile Crisis, and you describe it as the most perilous moment of the Cold War, saying, and I'm quoting you directly, quote, one could argue it was the most dangerous moment in the history of mankind, unquote. Uh, I think it may be obvious, but could you just say a little bit more about that? Well, certainly. We came closer to nuclear Armageddon, the whole world, not just the United States, than, mm-hmm. than ever before, ever since. I'm delighted to say anybody alive at the time remembers it. I was uh, I was uh, a ten or about 10 years old at the time, and I certainly recall uh, living in Norfolk, Virginia, right next to the largest naval base in the world. My father worked there. We knew it was a prime target. We had the family car packed up, ready to leave at a moment's notice, though my father couldn't go. The rest of the family was going off to the hills to try to survive the nuclear bombs. It has an effect on you when you yeah. when you go through um, you know a couple of weeks of wondering whether you're gonna you're gonna have uh, another sunrise. So um, it was a terrible experience for the world, and I think it changed both John F. Kennedy and Nikita Khrushchev. Both of them seemed much more interested mm-hmm. in forging a lasting peace and some kind of early detente ten years before it was achieved under different leaders. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> uh, it, uh, very it crucial, really. Speaking of national security and, and of uh, world events, um Question comes to mind. I know you've been asked about this. But even though national security could have been compromised, uh, because we know that spies come in every in, in each gender and in all kinds of situations, uh, JFK's sexual escapades uh, are, are something you do mention in the book. Uh, why do you think the press gave him such latitude and never revealed what was known about all of this at that time? 
it was actually the way things were. It wasn't just with John F. Kennedy, though clearly mm-hmm. he was a press favorite. There's no question about that, and the press didn't attempt to hide it. It, it was also one of the reasons why Nixon hated the press so much. He felt the press made the difference in that election, and look, they might have. It's impossible mm-hmm. to say for sure it was such a close election. But it wasn't just John F. Kennedy. It was it was a whole range of politicians. There were senators who drank heavily and fell down drunk in the Senate chamber right in front of the press gallery. Not a word of it appeared in print. You didn't mention that in the book, not that no, I recall. Well, no, it's, uh, I've got it in a footnote. I actually oh, covered okay. it in a, in I a never previous read footnote. No, yeah, okay. Well, there, you're probably wise not to, but, uh, <laughs> but in a previous book, Feeding Frenzy, I covered this in some uh-huh. detail. A uh, great story that I do include about Lyndon Johnson. Uh, Lyndon yeah. Johnson, on the uh, first New Year's Eve of his new presidency, met with a lot of reporters down in Texas before he went off to do whatever he was going to do. And uh, at the end of the of the chit-chat, White House correspondence, most of it just background, he said, oh, and one other thing, boys, and they were all men back then, one other thing, boys, uh, from time to time, you're going to hear about me going off to see some woman here or there, and uh, just so you know, it's none of your business, and let's keep it that way. <laughs> and they did. <laughs> they did, yes. Okay. There are, uh, you're, what I think part of what makes your book really uh, sets it apart from many of the others, because there are so many books uh uh, there have been, a, what, is it 400 since uh, the assassination of, of about Kennedy and this? But one of the things that sets yours apart is that you, you mentioned so many fascinating little tidbits uh, that I found absolutely uh, intriguing. Uh, tell us a little bit about Kennedy's famous utterance in Berlin, Ich bin ein Berliner. <laughs> well, of course, the strictly translated, it means yeah. I am a jelly donut. Uh, I am this, a jelly donut. I am a jelly donut, and this was known at the time. But you see, again, this gets back to what we were just discussing, different uh-huh. press rules. Uh, first of all, you were in a life-or-death struggle with the Soviet Union, and you were mm-hmm. at ground zero, uh, where the Soviets clearly wanted to take over uh, West Berlin if they had the opportunity. Uh, so the foreign press wasn't going to embarrass uh, the president, at least the, the Western press, and the American press wasn't going to do it either, because that was our leader, and uh, any embarrassment to him would be viewed uh, favorably uh, by the Soviet Union. So on the whole, uh, presidents were far more protected by the circumstances, uh, not just of the press rules, but of international relations at the time. Of the time, yeah. Uh, who do you think gave him that quote? I, I mean, you know, it, it, it's such a, uh, it translated literally, it, it's so off the wall. Uh, was there, was it just a mistake on someone's part? Uh, well, it think? was, it was a mistake, and obviously he didn't know German. It was translated for him by a staff member, and it was only yes. slightly off, and people knew uh-huh. what he meant. So yes. that was what was important at the time. But think about what would happen today. The cable news networks would oh. have enough fodder for weeks. It, it would go on and on. He would never outlive it, really. Uh, and it would be in the obituary. <laughs> so, <laughs> we, we live in very different times, and I, I'm yes, not sure do. it's for the better either. Yep. You you said some very interesting things in the book. Um, you said that JFK's death was inevitable, and you termed him, and I'm quoting you, quote, a marked man, unquote. You went on to say, quote, 
If Lee Harvey Oswald had never been born, if the Texas trip had never been scheduled, John F. Kennedy would still have been in jeopardy every day of his presidency. Even without Dallas, Kennedy would have been lucky to have been found next to a successor on the inaugural stand come January 20, 1969, unquote. Uh, I certainly know what you mean, but can you just elaborate a little bit? Certainly. We, we did a lot of research into the security arrangements for Kennedy, uh, both in Washington and and uh, at other locations and during his domestic and foreign trips. And we put together a little video that I show in, in presentations that most people find shocking given today's standards. The President of the United States is often without any Secret Service men close by. He is completely exposed. Kennedy, both at home and abroad, would often stand up in the limousine mm -hmm. for miles, making himself an even clearer target. There was no checking of open windows and buildings he was passing. Um, he would pass crowds of hundreds of thousands. In Dallas, it was about 200,000. They were not, not pre-screened. There, there wasn't any metal detector back in, the, in those days that was applied to presidential security. Um, at times, he was enveloped by crowds on the road, literally coming into the limousine, trying to touch him. And it only takes one uh, disturbed individual or one determined individual to kill mm -hmm. a president. He mm -hmm. saw millions this way. Many plots were broken up. The Secret Service uh, deserves the credit for that. But keep in mind, in that Dallas uh, motorcade, which was typical, by the way, of motorcades, no mm -hmm. one was on the running boards next to him. There, as I mentioned, 200,000 people, dozens mm -hmm. and dozens, if not hundreds of open windows on the 12-mile route, and uh, it's it's oh it only took one open window and one determined assassin unless you believe in a conspiracy and then maybe it was two one behind the the grassy the, the picket fence on the grassy knoll but the long and short of it is uh, with only twelve secret service men with him in the motorcade twelve facing mm -hmm. two hundred thousand people in these hundreds of open windows uh, mm -hmm. think about that repeated at home and abroad a couple of times a week. It's amazing he made it to November 22nd. And yes. they, they all, you know what they said to me, the survivors that I talked to, we didn't think it could happen. And I said, why did you think it couldn't happen? We've had assassination after assassination after attempted assassination after attempted assassination, even before 1963, plus all the plots they broke up during Kennedy's term. Why mm -hmm. would they think that? And it was part of the optimism of the day that we mm -hmm. no longer have because – We've we've seen the reality, I suppose, for so many decades. Mm -hmm. We we know that there have been endless theories spun, some ludicrous and some not so ludicrous, about the assassination. In in your view, Larry, is there any one person that you feel is most responsible for uh, the full picture not emerging uh, of the assassination? Uh, uh, you do talk, of course, about the the entire Warren Commission. Uh, is there any one person in particular? Oh, I wouldn't put it all on one person. Uh, some people put it all on Lyndon Johnson and others on mm -hmm. the fact that Earl Warren was distracted and others on key people in the CIA. And Look, they're all guilty as far as I'm concerned. They did a mm -hmm. terrible job in the Warren investigation, but I have to say in their defense, one reason why they did a terrible job was because they were lied to consistently by the CIA and the FBI. 
And the CIA continued to lie to the second investigatory committee in the 1970s. It was it was so consistent that the director of that uh, committee, uh, years later when he discovered the extent of the lying, said that he had absolutely no confidence in anything the CIA told the committee. Uh, that's a great shame. We hope that the 1,171 remaining CIA-related documents that are supposed to be released in 2017 mm-hmm. will give us more insights. Yeah. Do you feel that uh, – I think I know the answer to this, but I'd, I'd love to hear some of your thoughts. Uh, do you feel it's only because JFK was assassinated uh, – that there's such a continuing fascination 50 years later about the man and his presidency, or are there other factors as well? You can't deny that the assassination was was a big part of it. In mm-hmm. our focus group studies, for example, whenever we would bring up uh, Kennedy's uh, excessive uh, extramarital relations and reckless private life, People, even non-Democrats, would jump to his defense, and we probed it. And in just about every case, people said something like, the blood of the assassination washed away his sins. That's the essence of of what they said. Uh, Their view is he's not here to defend himself. So, yes, that is part of it, and the mystery of the assassination, the fact that you've now had incredibly over 300 separate theories of the assassination, everything but a UFO. That's the only one I haven't come across in, mm-hmm. in this research. Uh, that That is part of it. People view it as one of the uh, great unsolved mysteries of the 20th century. But I think that's unfair to President Kennedy. He was the best rhetorician of his era. And I think if you look at all the post-World War II presidents, only Reagan comes close to, to Kennedy. And I think Kennedy's better because Kennedy was good not just at set prepared speeches with a teleprompter or, or a script. He was great at extemporaneous speaking as well, at press conferences and other events where at times he would give a speech for 30, 45 minutes without a note. Mm. Mm-hmm. So that's part of it. And then there was the optimism of the era. Those of us who lived through it do look back to that. And and we realized America was at a peak. I didn't say the peak, but it was at a peak. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a happy time relatively. I understand the Civil Rights Revolution was brewing. There were lots of problems, but we felt we could deal with them all. We could beat them. Mm-hmm. Eloquently put, Um Larry, one last question. Uh, your book is so uh, filled with so much information and so many insights. Um, can you give us some overarching conclusions that your research has led regarding our retrospective view of John F. Kennedy? Yes, I, I think that that as we as we look back on the Kennedy presidency, um, we can see the power of legacy in certain circumstances. And we've mentioned the assassination being one of those circumstances. But you know, legacy for someone in a very prominent position like the presidency is a kind of life after death. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a reason why John F. Kennedy is the most popular post-World War II president. And our study shows that very, very clearly. Mm-hmm. And the reason is because people connected with the inspiration, the idealism, the specific programs, the way he approached making decisions, 
but they also felt some obligation to him and his family to take the best of John F. Kennedy and extend it through his nine successors. The successors felt that obligation because they could use the legacy positively to accomplish mm-hmm. their own ends, but the people wanted to do it as a tribute to President Kennedy. Right. And you even point out that not only did Lyndon Johnson use his legacy, but uh, even Republicans since then have used uh, JFK's legacy uh, to their own uh, ends, of course. Right. They they obviously distort the legacy to support their agendas, Reagan yeah. being an example. But Reagan used Kennedy brilliantly. You, yeah. That's what presidents should do. They, they have to use every tool in the toolbox to get their agenda accomplished. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We've been talking with uh, Larry Sabato, whose uh, book once again is uh, The Kennedy Half Century. Uh, It's a wonderful book. I speak from personal experience having read it. I'm not particularly fond of politics, uh, but I tell you, I was hooked uh, from the very beginning. there's more in this book than you could ever possibly digest. Uh, I was tempted to go back and start reading it again. Larry, thank you so much for talking with us and being on the podcast today. Thank you very much, and I appreciate your kind words about the Kennedy Half Century. Okay.